how blessed and privileged I am to be here to stand before you today as always as is normal there are certain preliminaries that should be observed when we stand to preach in another place I am mindful of those and I want to address them as quickly as possible. I'm going to forego most of them simply for the fact, allow me just to say thank you to South and to my brother, Pastor Don. There were some other things I wanted to say, but I want to capture this moment, I'd like for us to draw our minds in and we who are believers could take a moment to focus on the import and the impact of this moment. I was greatly pleased when I walked in here and saw such an array of my brothers and sisters on Good Friday, we have all taken time out on Good Friday. There are many other things that you could do. There are many other things that could be going on right now, even as we sit in this room, our community is bustling, our community is busy. When we walk out of these doors, we will see business going on as usual. And while there's a good number of us in this room observing this day, and I'm going to say a word about it, I can't help but think about how many others are around us, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, those who know about the significance and the impact of this day, and yet they have not taken any time to honor God. They have not taken any time to think about the fact that what we are remembering on this day has direct and eternal impact on their soul. But if we're not careful, we will fall into the danger of Christendom that many of us face, and that is that we become callous to what this day is about. We become hardened and stiff and religious. And this day becomes no more than a routine to us. But I want us for just a moment uh, to see if we can lift this beyond just the parameters of the routine and the monotonous today. Because it occurs to me that this is the same situation that occurred 2,000 and some years ago on that same Good Friday outside of Jerusalem on that hill called Golgotha there suspended between two thieves was a man named Jesus 
And time will not allow me, and I am preaching to those hopefully who already know, but we already know that that was more than a man in the middle. And yet, because it was more than a man, yet the citizens of Jerusalem didn't pay any attention. The hierarchy of Judaism written, had written him off. As a matter of fact, it was their desire to get rid of him any way they could. And so as we look at Calvary on Good Friday, we actually see the culmination of the intent of the religious hierarchy. The Pharisees and the Sadducees met Jesus and wanted to do away with him. He was a threat. He caused them to come face to face with their unrighteousness. But they weren't concerned. They were snickering. They were giving each other a high five on that day because the nefarious plan that they had inculcated weeks earlier had now come to fruition. This rabble rouser, this itinerant preacher, this troublemaker, this maniac who claims to be God. <laughs> Can't you, you heard them. If you are God, you remember they would say that as he hangs there. If you are, save yourself. The same snicker would come from one of the thieves on him. If you are the son of God, save yourself and save us too. Jerusalem was bustling. It was the Passover. Some scholars say there were more than a quarter of a million people in what was normally a sleepy town. But there were over half a million, quarter million to half a million people running around. And yet on that day, where were his disciples? Where was Nathaniel who asked, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Where were James and John, the Boanerges, the brothers who wanted to sit at the right and the left of Jesus? Where was Peter who said, I would die with you, I would die for you? Where was the man with the withered hand? Where? was the leper who had been healed? Where were those who had been touched by Jesus? They were nowhere to be found. A few of the women that followed him and John, the only people assembled around that cross the day God died. Yeah. It's taken me a lifetime and I still grapple, I still wrestle with it, but it is the tenet of our faith. It is the foundation of our belief. It is the reason for our hope that we dare to say God died. If you'll permit me, the death of God is not usual. The death of God is not normal. Oh, you've heard it before because we've been proclaiming the death of God and trying to kill God since creation. In a very famous writing called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, 
the atheistic philosopher Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, the first to posit that God was dead. There is a tomb with Nietzsche's name on it. There is no tomb with God's name on it. In the 60s, the radical theologians of Western Hemisphere once again raised their head, positing that God was dead. I could remember being a sophomore in college and having to read this radical theological position of the death of God, and I was shocked because no one had ever told me God had died, and if God died, no one told me he was still dead. But there is a movement that said God was dead, and I thought I must research this because I need to change my major. I thoroughly researched it, and I found out that these theologians were correct, yet they were incorrect. And let me set the record straight before I sit down. Yes! They said God is dead. In order for God to be dead, God had to die. Yes, God died, but let me say clearly and emphatically that God died, but he is alive. He is alive, and he is alive forevermore. But to make the statement that he lives implies that he died. Yes, it's something that we've got to grapple with. It's the mystery of our faith that God was willing to die to save you and I. Matthew records it because when God dies, it's an unusual incident, and and Matthew records some unusual incidents in his writing. Incidents that are not found in the other scriptures, particularly because Matthew is writing to convince a Jewish audience, whereas Mark is writing to a Roman audience, John writing to a Greek audience, they're writing to different audience, Luke writing to a Gentile audience. But as Matthew writes to this Jewish audience, he wants them to know, yes, God died. Scripture is interesting. Luke, when he writes his two-volume work of Acts and Luke, he begins, he says that Jesus, when he had risen, said he showed himself by many, one version says, infallible proofs. Another version says, many convincing proofs. So that we have a record in Scripture uh, of those who experienced his resurrection. Uh, Paul says that at one point he even appeared to 500 brethren at the same time. There is a record. There, there, there is an existential, verifiable record of the resurrection. But on the day God died, all of those who could have witnessed it had abandoned it. But I've got news for you. You remember when Jesus rode in a week before and those Pharisees warned him and chided him and said to him, tell your disciples to be quiet. Remember what he said to them. He said, if these should hold their peace, he said, the rocks would cry out because creation cannot be quiet when something is happening to its God. So I want to suggest to you that nature could not be quiet on the day God died. 
Listen to Matthew as he writes in chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. Reading from the New International Version, Matthew says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Man was silent. The disciples had abandoned him, those he had healed, those he had touched, those he, he had forgiven were not around that cross. But even though they were not there, God was not without a witness. Notice what the scripture says and I'll sit down. I want to focus on three things. Uh, tells us that even the death of Jesus demanded a cosmic response. Don't miss what happens here. Jesus walks out of the upper room on late Thursday evening, crosses the Kidron Valley, moves with his disciples into the Mount of Olives. There he leaves the group and takes those who were close to him. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. He tells them to stay and pray while he goes a little further. The Bible says he went a little further. Fell on his face and there he begins to wrestle with the will of God. Wrestle with the impending torture that he's about to face. Wrestling with the dregs of the cup of sin that he alone must drink. And there in that garden he prays with anxiety. There he prays. One writer records that he prays until as one watches him sweat comes out, but it looks like blood. Scientists say that there is a, 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 a situation produced in the human body called hematidrosis. That once one comes under such great anxiety 
this anxiety releases something in the brain and in the body that tears down the capillaries and when the capillaries are torn down the blood seeps in and as one under the anxiety the blood seeps into the capillaries and as one sweats blood and sweat Jesus was under so much tension and pressure that as he prays his body reacts violently can't you hear him as he says father if it be your will there while he prays in agony the disciples are sleeping you know the record is that he prayed three times he rises from prayer wakes up the disciples and says let us go and at that moment he is accosted not by one who is his enemy but by one who has followed him one who has supped with him one who has sat at his feet as he taught one who sat at the table with him named Judas Judas comes and you know that he is accosted. Jesus is taken from the Mount of Olives to Annas' house, the high priest. He and Caiaphas are in cahoots. He goes from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house. There at night in an illegal convening of the Sanhedrin council who cannot convene until daylight, but yet to fulfill their nefarious plot to get rid of Jesus. They illegally meet at night and there they torture him. If you are a prophet, if you are a king, tell us who hit you, tell us. As they slapped him on his face, tortured him all night. After they got through playing with him, they brought him to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate after he gets through pray, playing, playing with him. And Pilate then giving in to the desire of the crowd allows Jesus to be scourged. Don't go past that too quickly. For scourging, the most hideous form of suffering ever created, scourging, these soldiers took what is called a flagrum, a cat of nine tails, Long leather strips at the end, bits of bone and steel tied into these whips so that when they would whip the convicted criminal, the bone and the steel would crawl into the skin and every time they pulled it back, the skin would come off. Some scholars say they would be beaten so bad that at the end of the beating you could see the spinal cord of many of the criminals. Were you there? They beat him. They beat him all night. They scourged him all night. They whipped him all night, innocent. And early in the morning, as if that was not enough to make fun of him, they robed him in a regal red robe. They took a crown of thorns, plaited it upon my Savior, took those thorns and pressed them in his brow until the thorns tore into his skin. And there on his body, the man who had been beaten all night, now because of blood loss, suffering hypovolemic shock, they dare take a patibulum, 
the cross beam of the cross, place it upon his shoulders and cause him to drag that cross outside of the city gates to a place called Golgotha, the place of his own execution. And there they take nails and drive him through his hands, nails and drive him through his feet. And there they raise him up. And there he hangs. The record says, they hung him after they had beat him all night. They hung him at nine o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning, he hangs between two thieves. From nine to 12, he hangs. From nine to 12, he's battered. From nine to 12, he's scorned. From nine to 12, mankind takes out its most heinous and hideous anger on not just a man, but on God. The Bible says something happened at noon. Midday, 12 noon. At 12 noon, it becomes midnight. You read it. You, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness, darkness comes over the entire land at noon. Midnight. At midday. Darkness when should be the brightest time of the day. But I submit to you that God was hanging on that cross. And as God hung on that cross, theologians have tried to come up with ideas to explain it away. There are theories. There's the, the eclipse theory. And they would tell us that there was an eclipse going on that day. But listen to me, brothers and sisters, you cannot have a solar eclipse during the time of Passover. It is impossible. Could not be an eclipse. Others say it was a windstorm. You know, Palestine is so sandy, the wind blew to such a degree that it obscured the vision. No, my brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what happened. God turned off the lights. His son was dying. God turned off the light. Sin was being judged. Whenever you read scripture, whenever you find darkness, you find sin. The Bible says, here's the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Whenever there is judgment on sin, there is darkness. God on that cross was judging the sin of mankind and because of that sin, heaven turned out the lights. Ah, but something else happened as I take my seat. Ah, not only did God turn out the lights, but the Bible says, in verse 51, it's interesting, at that moment, when Jesus died, and I want you to notice, if time permitted me, I would show you how the scripture says, he gave up the ghost. It was not taken from him. He told us, no man can take my life. 
He said, but I can lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it up. And so there as he hung on the cross, Rome thought it was in charge. The Jews thought they were in charge, but God was still in charge. Jesus did not die until he got ready. And when he got ready, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, you know what was happening? In the temple in Jerusalem, religion was going on as usual. In the temple in Jerusalem, there the priest had the responsibility of offering a sacrifice to God three times a day. In the morning at nine, the sacrifice would be offered. At noon at 12, the sacrifice would be offered. At three o'clock, the sacrifice and prayers would be offered. That's why in Acts chapter three, we see Peter on his way to the temple at what they call the hour of prayer, three in the afternoon. Here it is, three in the afternoon, 12 to three. Here it is, darkness covering the whole earth. And here it is, the priest going into the temple to do what he has always done, to make a sacrifice. But that priest could not walk in to the Holy of Holies. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, only once a year could the high priest, not just any priest, only the high priest could walk behind that veil with blood in his hands to go into the holy, holy, holy place, the most holy place of God. And there where the Ark of the Covenant had once resided, there he would shed blood for the remission of sin. On that day when God died at Calvary, at the same time that Jesus dies on Calvary, the Bible says the curtain that stood before the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, from top to bottom, from top to bottom, from top to bottom. Now, don't be confused when your Bible says it was a curtain. This was more like a huge Persian rug, usually 60 feet wide, 60 feet long, 30 feet tall, thicker than a man's hand. And there the priest goes to stand to do, to to, to make forgiveness. And as he stands there, all of a sudden, the veil is rent from top to bottom, not bottom to top, the work of the priest from top to bottom, the work of God. God was saying with Christ and his sacrifice, there is no longer a need for the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I'm going to sit down, but there's one more thing that jumps from the pages of the Holy Writ. I wish I could get away, but I can't get away without letting you know something else happened that is very strange. It says that at the moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, rock splits, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went in to the holy city and appeared to many people. What we see here, my brothers and sisters, is a preview 
of our resurrection. I got to sit down now because I'm about to get excited. <laughs> Scholars have spent years semantically tearing this text apart, looking at it inside and out, studying it from its cultural, linguistic, and semantic positions. They argue about whether these saints, who these saints were. They argue about when did they come into Jerusalem? Was it before the crucifixion, after? There's a whole argument. You can read it. Let me settle it by saying this. When you do all of that, there are two things that are clear in Scripture. Not only were they clear that day, but they are clear to this day, and they will be clear forever. And what is clear is that when Jesus died, his death, gave life to believers. We're standing here today because God died for us. We're standing here today because when we were separated and alienated from God because of our rebellion, when no man could do, Abraham could not be trusted, Isaac could not be counted upon, Jacob could not be counted upon, Joseph could not be counted upon, the prophetic lineage could not be counted upon, and what no man could do, God did himself by wrapping himself in human flesh. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hands of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And every time I need him, he's always near. Oh, I thank you for the prophetic record. I thank you for the scriptural record. I thank you for the proclamation of creation. But let me tell you why I know he lives. I know he lives because he lives in my soul. Thank you, man.